on the question of black SS counters, he says, why not paint? His flamethrowers never run out of flame. In the 98 Winter Offensive, he came in first and second. He is the most interesting ASL player in the world. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I listen to the two half squads. Roll low, my friends. This is a little show we have that's about a certain special game. Advanced Squad Leader. It's just a game. It's more than a game. It's a way of life, really. And we are your hosts. I'm Jeff. And I'm Dave. This is our 87th episode. Which is blowing our minds. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Almost as much as the fact that they might bring a mastodon, a woolly mammoth, and a saber-toothed tiger back to life. That would be very cool. Yep. That would be very cool. And what was the other one? A smell a smellodon? The smilodon is the smilodon? is the saber tooth tiger. Oh it is. That's its other name. Okay. Kind of, yes, it is. That's what it says in this article. They want to bring back an extinct zebra. I have a hard the, time believing that. It's the, called a smilodon. A smile smilodon. Smilodon. That's because you didn't paint the miniature no, smilodons when you were painting your D and D figures. No, Jeff. I was painting I was painting the stinkosaurus. But <laughs> if you did paint it, you would know. I guess I would. And they also want to bring back the Tasmanian tiger. Because nothing teaches you more about biology than painting a model. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> and they want to bring back the Caribbean monk seal. They want to bring them back? They don't excite me They want to bring all much. these back? Next yeah. thing you know, they'll be bringing back Gilligan's Island. And the, do- and the dodo bird. <laughs> the dodo. It's on the list. That would be something. Well, maybe he'll be a guest on the show. The Since dodo or Gilligan's? <laughs> any of them. Any of them. Oh, anyway, as long as, they're, as long as they're not from the East Coast, they'll be on our show. So, so what's up with you, Jeffrey? So, oh man, what a day! What crazy? It's been crazy. Why? It's been, well, I I just had another one of those. I had another. You know, I do a lot of computer stuff. I mean, I compu- I'm a computer consultant. I do a lot of really important stuff mm-hmm. and big important stuff that takes a smart man to do it. Yes, but I teach children, Jeff. Yes, I know. Well. So today I'm working on smart stuff, you know, building big databases and encryption and stuff like that. And one of my clients calls and he says, he says, I keep getting this email sent and it's going into my uh, junk folder. He uses Microsoft Outlook for his email client. Keeps going into the junk folder and I can't. tell him to get rid of the junk folder and take care of it? no. He says, I want to open it, but I can't click on anything. And that's what the junk folder does. It protects your computer, so you can't click on links and stuff like that. So what he's been trying to do is he's been forwarding it to himself. He doesn't know how to drag it out of the junk folder into the inbox. So he's been forwarding it to himself, hoping it'll go into the inbox. And then it comes over? Yes, Dave. That's what you do. You knew that. (laughs) Forwarding it to himself. Forwarding it. Out of the junk folder to himself, and then it to appears a, to a different account. No, his own himself? account. <laughs> he said, "I wanted to get it into my inbox, so I forwarded it to myself." 
I just thought, <laughs> I just, I'm going to tear these my hair out. are the products of the public education yeah. system. Well, somebody's turned this guy loose with a computer. It doesn't seem right. Like you should have to pass some kind of a test. It's well, like turning a guy <clears> loose. With, here, here's a four-masted schooner, and uh, that way is Europe. And okay, there you go. And he's like, you couldn't play squad leader like that. Not knowing anything. <laughs> I mean, that's not... Maybe we are a rare breed of gamer. <laughs> and I'm not the greatest squad leader player in the world. And, and you know, but I do read the rules. I, I do. Honest. I do read. I don't just sit down and move stuff around and roll dice and go, ooh. ooh, ooh. Well, sometimes <laughs> I do. just hope something's going to happen. <laughs> sometimes I just do that. <laughs> well, that's what it looks do like. Do you want to look this up or no? No, let's just what? roll a die. Odd, even. Odd yeah, goes your odd, way. Yeah. Even it's my way. Okay, go. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you're going to use a computer, take a little interest in it, I think. Well, I tell you, I worked on the posters for my school play today and yesterday. Yeah. And I really got into it. And it was just the pages program on the Mac, which is kind of like a drawing program, but it's not really. But I had a student draw the pictures, mm -hmm. ganned them, sent them to myself. And they kept showing up in my junk mailbox. <laughs> Horrible. What'd you do? Just give up? <laughs> Excuse me. So I scanned them to myself. I had to convert them to a JPEG because I realized they wouldn't go into iPhoto. Got them in iPhoto, edited them, enlarged them, changed the contrast, could erase dirt marks around that I didn't get with my pencil on her work. Mm -hmm. And then... Loaded them into pages, poster, and and I ended up making like, of course, doing it way too long. You know, made four variations. Which one's better? And what if it's larger, smaller? Move it this way, move it that way. You know, these graphic designers have it easy these yeah. days. Yeah. You know, in the old days, that was literally those stencil letters. Oh, yeah. Remember those rub on? Yeah. Stencil letters. Yeah. Yeah. And we were doing that. Doing that. Rub on stencil letters. And we used to sell. Um, but anyway, it was cool to see the girls' artwork in the program, and you yeah. know, I called her. She came in at lunch, and I said, you got to come see this. She came back at lunchtime and looked and was like, oh, yeah. So it's when I print these out. You know, you be sure to take one, and we'll list your name as the graphic artist in our program. I mean, she gets the credit. You know, I'm just uh, an assistant, I guess, to her. But, um, yeah, the we used to sell tickets in, in the old days, so they would make tickets. Out of paper, you know, multiple oh, yeah. copies, cut them in the cut big them. paper cutter. And mm -hmm. I don't know if they numbered them individually or when they sold them, remember, they numbered them. And and, and so we and – and I arrived and I realized, well, we're just selling these tickets to these people. And then they bring them back to us the night of the show and give them to us. Yeah. What was the point of giving them a ticket? They just give it back to me. We oh, never yeah. sell out. Ever. Oh, ever. We don't have assigned seats. Yeah. Why are we selling tickets? So you could keep the money. Well, don't you, we you, still don't you always the, skim yeah, the top? No. <laughs> I still do that at the yeah, at, good. Good. So they so yeah, the year I took over fully I said, There's there no tickets this year, just tell your parents to show up at the door with cash or check. Oh yeah. Right? Well you could do that, yeah. For yeah, it's the same thing. No, you, you want to front with load. No it's like numbers. Kickstarter though. You want to front load no, your I don't uh, want to track all that. Oh. No, no. Oh. So we sit couple people at the door at the cash box and it works out beautifully but for years they would 
go to all this trouble to make these tickets. Looks official. So, yeah, I suppose it looks official. Like I mean, show up at the door with some cash, man. I just yeah. got to cover my expenses. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's Dave. Dave with a no clothes, just a barrel, wearing a barrel. <laughs> Say, well, I finance this whole show myself. And I have never lost money on it. Kind of like you and me. And this show. With no pants. With no pants. <laughs> Someday we'll be able to afford pants. And I have never lost money on a show, I'm proud to say. One year I lost money in the yearbook, but that was when the principal told me, you know, all these parents complain when they forget to order one. It's the end of the year and the children are crying. Why don't you just order enough for every kid? So yeah. I did. Yeah. And lost money. Yeah. Because <laughs> they course. didn't buy them all. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and he did bail me out then. So. Then you're giving those away. And, yeah, we were giving yeah. them away. Yeah. I mean. Well, so that's our day. That's our day. And then. Well, I'm, actually, I'm, that was partly my last 20 years of my teaching yeah. <laughs> career. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's a, it's a never-ending <laughs> saga. I'd like to hear other people's sagas. And, I, and during the day when stuff like that's going on, I dream of the day when, when I can be a full-time gamer. Trying to figure out how to monetize that. Yeah, and that's still... Full-time podcaster and gamer. Is that 65? 65 years old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no. I could do it next year. I just need $10 million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so if anybody's got that, let me know. So well, anyway, busy week. Every year another step closer. Yes, I that's suppose. right. That's right. We've had some fun. Um, we went to dinner with our wives and and uh, and the Spilkies and the Spilkies, Rich Spilkie and his wife, and we went as the two half squads and Rich Spilkie and wife. <laughs> I think that's how we made our reservation, didn't we? So, so that was kind of fun. First time the wives ever got together, and they uh, really they for the three of them, yes, they, yes. They couldn't wait until we stopped talking about squad leader. Rich was doing really well. The, the women would try to talk about stuff like uh, sewing, sewing, yeah, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And then Rich would just he'd go, I, "Oh, that reminds me, I got another story about squad leader and the two half squads." And <laughs> well, he did. He kept it kept us on course. I like that. They did have an agenda of talking about the women's experiences. Oh yes, as gamer wives. Yeah, did they do that? Yeah, remember we did. Oh, we did? <laughs> because, yeah, you had, had several Where was I? <laughs> drinks by then. Yeah. I think I did. Um, because, remember, his wife, Rich, had not gained. Oh, that was right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, different than you and I, yes. pretty much. Yeah, well, we talked about the um, <clears throat> how we got into gaming and if, did our wives, or at that time girlfriends or whatever, know about it and how did they... Right, Take, and, and yeah. Rich had not done it for like didn't know it all for ten years, and then suddenly right. got into full, suddenly, yeah. full speed again. So yeah, it struck them as and his, his and, wife was, and my wife was the only horrified. one that had played squad leader. Yes, pretty amazing. Yeah, so that's why makes, you sat at the head of the table. Yes, and why my wife's the coolest. Yeah, except for Robin. Yes, or anybody else that's listening. <laughs> You're the coolest. Repeat after me. You are the coolest. So that was fun. We should, we'll do that again sometime. Yeah. And maybe we'll leave the wives home. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So anyway, how about uh, we get on with the show? You think we should? All right, sir. There's enough time for tomfoolery and other stuff. We have a lot of stuff on the table. Yeah, we do. Yeah, very busy. Dave brought over some 
some stuff. So this is from the Bill Cobble collection. The Bill Cobble collection. collection. So so Dave has thank brought you over for me. Yeah, go ahead. And thank you again, Bill. Bill and is he, amazing. He sent us a, a thank you for the thank you check we sent him and a little gift kickback gift from some of the sales that we didn't use to support the show. Yeah, kicked back to Bill and then. So um, we should send him a thank you card for that thank you. We, card I did. We, oh, oh, thank you for the, for the thank you. you. Ad infinitum. Well, he emailed us, so we can email him back. Thank oh, okay. you. Or just say it on the air. Thank you again, Bill. Thank Bill. Because Jeff, you. we did get him the copy of the Alamein and the West of Alamein. I'm holding it in my hands, including the box, which is my old box actually, because Jeff doesn't value boxes, and I do now. After that beating oh, I took, do you, oh, well, then I, do I have the better the box. box at my no, house. No, no, this is fine. Okay, no, this is fine. Okay. It looks great. <laughs> <clears throat> Unsorted counters. Yeah, I, I, I ran out of steam on oh. the sorting. This was the Dave, last. I think, Dave, you're retiring now from, uh, from sorting. counter sorting. It, it took a year to do all this total. Has it been that long? Yeah, oh, we yeah, had I the squad leader right. stuff up for sale, and we had stuff, all oh, kinds of stuff, God. remember? Yeah. And we had stuff selling on the show and stuff on eBay, and then uh, stuff that I kept the second set of most everything except for the Italians, which you have here, too. Yeah, now and along here, the Italians. Yeah. I have extra British because I had my set from the... Um, you know, reissue. Right. King and Country. King so. and Country, yeah. So we have which, I, which I do have. So I'm very happy to get West All of the Desert Maine because I love the desert. And uh, very happy to get the Italians because I, I was playing Rich the other day and he was coming over and I went to get my Italians and I suddenly discovered I do not have the Italians. <laughs> You'd think I would remember stuff like that. but <laughs> Well, that's kind of big. But you do have a lot more now. I got It's, it's growing. To. Yeah, it's, it's growing. Well, I think what threw me off is every time I played the Italians, I've been at your house. Well, right. We did a couple, and we did them at the Open. Yes. And we did the series of them in that. From that. uh, Action pack. Yes. Yes, we did. So you have seen them a lot. Yeah. So I was looking through all my stuff, and I thought, where are the Italians? I couldn't find them. So thank you for bringing them. And the best thing is you got the pre-cut overlays. Oh, these are pre-cut. Bill, these are not Bill cut. already cut them out. Thank you, Bill. Oh, pre-cut, yes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That that right there. It's worth another thank you card. That's worth a lot. <laughs> to not start to another one. Sit and cut those things off. It's like the thank you card chain letter. And I found that at home, gluing my models together, the metal miniatures, Yeah. epoxy resin, you can't use an instant glue or uh, super glue on that stuff, On that, not on the metals, really. You need to go to epoxy resin. Mm-hmm. Five-minute cure, which is really a 20-minute cure. It is. I've tried several different brands. I don't know if listeners out there email me with your best five-minute really strong epoxy. We could do a five-minute epoxy experience podcast. Yes, we could. <laughs> Probably. But I have to hold the little arms on the little you know fire giant miniatures. And, and you got to st- so. sit there for five minutes? 20. For 20? For a full yeah, cure. For, yeah. yeah. And, then, yeah. and so I, 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 I'm doing it watching TV now. So I'm yeah. sitting with my kids and wife and... Talking and having jolly old fun, holding that together, <laughs> which I used to do in the basement by myself. Oh, and I'm thinking that was really dumb to spend all those years holding this figure together at home in the basement. Or I try and balance it between, yes, you know, Coke cans, right? Yeah, and <laughs> make a book, it wedge in there, book, and, and a rubber you, band. Yeah, you look away and then come back. Exactly. And it would have slipped in a different formation, and and then the it arm is glued on sideways. Yeah. I'm like, oh, rah, rah, rah. You can't get it off for anything. I'll just sit there holding the thing a little bit there and and watch TV. Wow. My advice to all modelers. Yeah, you get a lot of, but you can't really do much else. You can't knit or anything or greet somebody at the door. No, 
Yes. Yeah. So now if the Pope comes you, over, then you drop your glue. Oh, you just let it go. Oh yeah, when the Pope comes. Oh, well, you've got standards. And so, where where uh, so that's we got a lot, so we got a lot of stuff. Why don't we, we got get, a lot of we letters? Get, should we do some letters? We should do some letters. All right, hold on. I'm going to grab the and music here. Here it's it's coming. And pause it all out so we can what figure out what we're doing. Uh, okay. Why do that? Why start now? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, sorry, everybody. I turned up the speed on it because we got a lot of a lot yes, of stuff to do. Yes, this is the fast version. Nave Waffe. Qua de Gur. Hello, guys. Qua de Gur means cross of war, and it was a medal given to the French during the Second World War. And the, uh, the pronoun- that is the correct pronunciation for the uh, close defence weapon system. That's basically what it means uh, for the Tigers and King Tigers. Uh, it kills me every time I try to say it. Um, keep up the good work. Uh, love the box art reviews. Uh, it's starting to grow on me. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to do one soon of Rising Sun. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Thank you, James McKenzie, for the helpful pronunciations. We'll try to remember them. Can't promise we will. And now on with the letters. Would you like to start? I know you have the bottom ones. Oh, I get to start? Oh, good. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, this one, uh, here's our first letter. It was posted on our YouTube channel. Uh, as a response to one of our episodes, I can't remember which one, but this is from Jack McKenzie, and he says, I assume the vehicle notes were for the miniatures, and he's talking about, uh, we had some discussion about Deluxe ASL. Correct. And the fact that they came with those the nice... GHQ, really teeny minis. Yes. Yes. I was talking about how much I like those cards, the AFV cards, with all the information on them. Yeah, and those and, are usable with any ASL. They are, but he says, you know, they were really designed for the deluxe ASL for the miniatures. How else could they show off all the stats? Oh, I get it. Because if you're playing with miniatures, yeah, you don't have the stats, you so you've so you got to have the cards. Or the counter out, right? Or and you so, don't have the counter out. Correct. Yeah, that is correct. So that's why they don't work. Counters have all the advantage in space info and convenience. So, of course, that makes sense. Oh, okay. But uh, the yeah. cards you can label, too, with uh, um, broken gun... Vehicle A, B, C, D, yes. which, yeah, you couldn't do on your minis. No. Well, you know. Yeah. Right. Oh, good point. So, thanks, James. And I have a letter from Baron Zemo. Do you? Uh, another good episode. I have one question and two comments. First, is there any, is there any, are there any scenarios with the British and the Italian battles in Ethiopia? I'm, you're look, I'm you're, looking at Jeff like, <laughs> I know and you don't, I know and you don't. Why, yes, there are. But I'm wondering of if course. I told you about them. No, yeah, I don't think you did. That. No. When Dave Timonen first started playing me we, in ASL, we played all of the Ethiopian scenarios that came in a little packet from Critical Hit called something about ASL. Yeah, with, <laughs> with Ethiopia. No, no. Oh, darn. African something, North African <laughs> attack. 
Jeff insists my memory's okay. I'm oh, just I think busy. Memory, you have a great I memory. I think I have a problem, ladies and gentlemen. You remember you played you can, it. You I can think hear me good. deteriorate over the next several years of doing the podcast. Yeah, well, probably if we... Yeah. So, so, oh, soldiers, <laughs> soldiers of the Nagos. Soldiers, soldiers of, of the, the Nagos. Nagos. Yes, Google really? it if you wish. Okay. You don't have to, though. It was the Ethiopians, and it was Critical Hit, and it had the Eritreans, and they had spear-armed troops. See, my mind's as sharp as ever, ladies and gentlemen. And it had tank tipping rules in it. Yes, for tank tipping. Tank tipping? Yeah, because they, they come out of the gullies and those light armor frame vehicles of the early Italians. They would tip them very, very rarely, but it did happen historically. Wow. And um, nice little game. And rumor has it, MMP is going to include it in its next release of the Italians. Oh, super. Well, that's, that's very nice. I, am just, I looked this up on Board Game Geek. This was came out in 1994, designed by Rick Thomas, and yes, it was from Critical Hit, and it was a four included a four page historical booklet, two rules pages, eight scenarios, and one counter sheet. Soldiers of the Negris features eight scenarios depicting action from the Italo-Ethiopian War of 1935-1936. Now, I I know nothing about that. What were they fighting about? Well, I'll ask you again see later. The, no, the Ita- well, it's t- a little complicated, <laughs> but the, when they ordered pizza, the Italians thought the Ethiopians had said they wanted meat, but th- yeah. they, they were vegetarians, ah. so they were a big war. That means uh, war. Well, Italy invaded, so that's just a war of aggression. Oh, they did. And, and Hale Selesi goes before the League of Nations asking for help. Mm-hmm. The League does not take satisfactory action in any way, which they think encourages Hitler to be aggressive. Ah, um, and then I found out later that the Rastafarians believe Haile Selassie is a reincarnation of Christ. Wow. And I'm not making that up either. That is true. Yeah, the Rastafarian faith believes that Haile Selassie was a, an incarnation or some form of the Christ, of like Jesus Christ. I think they, you know, I, I had to reread that. But a student told me that once, and I said, no, you're... That's a little crazy. Yeah, and it seems uh, nuts. didn't mean to insult anyone's faith. And sure enough, look it up. It, it is true. Haley Selassie is their leader, and uh, of course, they lost to the Italians, right? As you would guess, to their superior technology mm-hmm. and the lack of the League of Nations actions. Yeah. And as I recall, I love the scenarios. Timonen loved them, and he was a new guy. And you know, I don't know if you know. I need to look at them all again. But yeah, yeah. Rumor had it somewhere, and I thought it was from a good source that. MMP was considering or had decided to include them in the re-release of the Italians. Yeah. And there were tank-flipping tactics in there. Tank tipping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see yeah. that here. So they've got a nice, uh, we'll include the link to Board Game Geek. And uh, it, oh, got, yeah, it yeah. got a good, you know, 7.47 out of 10. So that's a good ranking. Yeah, I, I, Interesting. Would, I would probably put it right there, or yeah. 8, because I'm more generous, I think, yeah. with all my ASL product rankings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also says that was first. And second... Uh, I was the one who sent you the big box of books last summer. Ah. I forgot to send a note with it. Well, you did, and we lost it, Baron yes. Zemo. Con- we con- conjunctively, no, that? consecutively. No, it. Both I con- lost it. Okay. I was going to say we, con- <laughs> we we lost it in unison. No, I, I lost know. it. And Je- I got over it here with it, it and do- looking in the box going, well, yeah. Jeff, I- it had a note with it. I don't know yeah. what I did with it. And he said you can give away his prizes or keep them and so on. And, and it- we have done so. 
And lastly, so, we gave some to a. I gave some to Rich Spilkey when he was here the other day. As a, I said, a uh, merit for merit. He said, and "What are those nice looking books?" And I said, "Well, a generous listener donated those, and we have several copies of some of them." And so he took those and as a frequent very guest, happy. Rich yeah. Spilkey yeah. finally got paid yes. to help <laughs> us on the show. And uh, I have a letter here oh, from. No, I'm not done. Oh, at, at and last, <laughs> here's a great YouTube site. A large selection of World War II videos, so it's uh, uh, we'll just link it up too. Okay, all right. Yeah, a large selection of World War. II. That's Two the videos. problem with YouTube. There you go. There oh, yes, it's a gigantic selection. The whole of world's out videos. there. Uh, letter here from Alan Hume. Hi there, guys. This is Alan Hume over in Edinburgh, and I just want to ask a question: Where the heck do I find a King Tiger counter for ASL? I was looking for Beyond Valor the other day, and, well, it has tigers and panthers and all the rest of it. It doesn't seem to have any King Tigers. Just wondering if you could help. Okay, thanks, guys. Love the show, by the way. Alan! Alan, he says, uh, nice long letter. Hi, guys. I just wanted to say hi and just how much I enjoy your show. I was going back through the archives recently and bolstered by your rather fine review, I took the plunge and bought myself a copy of Festum Budapest. Yes. Whilst, I think this must be something from from England. Yes. Whilst it was indeed a high-ticket item for me, I must admit I don't regret it. It's a thing of beauty. I'm now waiting for my copy of Valor of the Guards to arrive, arrive at Black Lion Games, my friendly... FLGS, what's it? Friendly local, local gaming store. Gaming store. Okay, good thing in, you have one here in Edinburgh. Uh, that's in Scotland. Yep, I've been splurging. Uh, meant to ask, I was skimming over my still on punch counter sheets in Beyond Valor the other day and noticed a glaring omission. Um, omission: there are no king tigers in the mix. On the whole, hmm. I think you get a lot of bang for your buck in the box, but there does seem to be a few German vehicles missing. So he's wondering, why are the King Tigers left out? And how do you get some? And I thought, you know, this could be a good side business for us. Making up King Tiger. Where like they, counterfeit what, what King scenario? Tiger. Well, they're out there somewhere, aren't they? If not, we can, I'm sure we can they really, are. really rake in some dough. Because here's a quick Google. Yeah, up. I'm sure there must be. J141, Riding with the King, King Tigers, ASL117, A O O. With tigers on their tails, um, yeah, they they must they must be out there. I'm sure I have gotta them. Maybe they got. I'm sure you do. Anyway, well, Alan, we're, we're, yeah, we're putting a, it out there. Somebody will answer. Tell us what game. Give us. Yeah, did they come with? Is yes. that the question? What game did they come with? Or a historical module? And how does Alan get his hands on some? Yes. In case somebody's got some extras. And I have a letter from Dustin Witches. Or do you say White Jays? White, uh, I don't know. I call him Dustin. Hi, Jeff and Dave. I was wondering if y'all could do a show or a segment on airplanes, not gliders, that enter usually at the beginning of the game and bombard the board before play. Now, I don't know actually what he's referring to there, Dustin. You have airplane air support. Air support can come in with a bomb attack. Yeah, or point strafing. attack or strafing attack, and we did talk right? about that, didn't we? All the gliders we did, we didn't do airplanes yet. We didn't do strafing I, with airplanes. I... Point attacks, I don't think so. Okay, we have to check our record. <clears throat> All right. And there's a pre-game bombardment. 
Right. But that's an artillery barrage yeah. kind of bombardment. Right. Typically, that represents that. Yeah. So as far as it being the airplanes that enter the beginning of the game and bombard the board before play, I don't think that happens much unless it's specific scenarios that we don't know about. I think it happens in the box, actually, before you even open up <laughs> the airplanes well, bombard. Because how do those little shell holes get on the board, painted yeah, on the board? That's right. Nobody, They don't paint them on there. They get... Yeah, actually, I can't speak to that. So, um, but we will do a show about planes. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. And yeah. bombardments gotta, too. Yes. Pre-game bombardment. We got a lot of nice stuff one. added to the list. I have my secretary Get do that away. right away. I have a letter here from Hipsu. That's the only name is on there. Uh, Hipsu has left us a comment, and the comment is. The box art review was hilarious. This is a comment from episode 85, lots of boxes. The box art review was hilarious. You outdid yourselves this time. Well, well thank you. Thank you very much. I think Bob outdid us. Yeah, Bob was amazing. He must have put a lot of prep work into that. I think he winged it as well as we usually wing <laughs> it when we're, when we're doing those things. He did. He was right on the mark. <laughs> and no box art today, though. Sorry. No. But more coming. Stay tuned. And I have one from Andrew Cohen. Or do you say Cowan? <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for the excellent humorous podcast. I enjoy the historical background, especially the book and movie recommendations and rules explanations are wonderful. It has been about, well, Timonen just told me the rules explanations is when he starts to nod off. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I listened to the last show with Red Barricades, <laughs> and there was a lot in there, but it was still interesting. But it does, it's, you know, it's you may not want to do it to, all at once. Yeah, it's hard to follow. Yeah. And, okay, to that point, a little side note here. I was reading the um, – we were playing the last bid, and Tom Barkalo recommended, oh, there's an article on Overrun in the journal, 9, 8, whatever – Okay, let's reread it. So I'm rereading it, and it's taken me a really long time. And the overrun can be really complicated. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because you, before, the, we did this with Bob on the air, and Bob makes things simpler. He does. Yeah, and he does, and I think there's an approach to that, and I, you know, to, to kind of paraphrase the rules, but rather than to get into the accept when and, you know, unless you're pinned, blah, blah. But it's... It's nice to hear it, too, have a chance to hear it coming across the air. There's yeah. another way to listen to it while you're driving to work, right? getting to know the rules. But the, the, um, Mr. Noriega, I think his name was, um, great article. And he gives examples, and he says, here's a rule. And then he kind of summarizes it. This is kind of saying this. Ah, and then nice. let's look at how this works. And so yeah. that's been very, very informative but challenging also. And I have to reread sentences even twice. Is that to, all? To, twice? Yeah, well, to visualize it twice. Yeah. And then I found, oh, I'm gonna, I only read two pages in this last half hour, you know, or, 20, or 10, 15 minutes maybe. Um, I'll pick it up tomorrow, and then I reread a page, half a page again, and it still sounds new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh right, he said this, which you know. So I'm trying to find a way to get it in my head. What's the best strategy? Do I take the patsy when I'm concealed, or keep concealment because it mm. can benefit me later in close combat? But he's going to overrun me first, and 
And that's where sometimes I just get to the old uh, six of one half dozen of another, just pick something and yeah. try it. But, right. But if you were writing the article, you would go to all the trouble of figuring out all of those details. And it would make you a better player, yes? No doubt. Yeah. And I think if I took a few notes on this, mm-hmm. I could make a little cheat sheet that could just give me quick pointers to use during play. Yeah. But I didn't do that yet. Yeah. But I'm only halfway done with the article. But anyway, Andrew was saying, it's been about three years since I got back into gaming. I tried about every tactical game, Lock and Load, Hero Series, Conflict of Heroes, Band of Brothers. All great games with excellent components. But in the end, ASL is still the tactical World War II war game system. Yeah. So I'm reinvesting in ASL. Now, that's interesting to hear. A lot of people thinking, oh, it's just too complicated. Yeah. And in the end, he says, you know, this is just the best darn system. It is. Reinvesting for second edition rule book, Beyond Valor, and blah, blah, blah. He wishes MMP would bundle the rule book with a mini module like Paratrooper, or maybe publish smaller historical modules needed to play. That's a good idea, too. Yeah. We've all got a, lo- a list of things we'd like MMP to do. But P.S. I don't skulk, and P.P.S. don't throw away your boxes. Yeah. And he's got an eBay link. I didn't look at advice. it. I wonder if it's boxes selling on eBay. <laughs> you know, and I. Uh, I'm gonna at some point one of these days. I'm gonna stop saying I'm not a, a longtime gamer. I'm not a great gamer. I'm not a hundred hours a week gamer. But I have played other games, and I still come back to ASL. And just in my limited experience, ASL is the best system. It's the one that keeps drawing me back. And I buy these modern ones, like the ones he mentioned. Yeah, and it has a lot more on... stuff. You know, it's got all kinds of charts and things and you move your counters and it gives you the flip thing and roll the this and it then your initiative is that and phase this and it all looks really good but i keep going back to asl and i've i sold all that stuff everything I there's just it something just about and keep me coming back yeah running across the street getting heat of battle yes. going berserk or yep. and then doing some bizarre thing yep. happens on the way to the yeah, doing a morale check and a hero and hero creation. I mean, stuff like that. You know, is exciting. It is. It's, it's just, just really exciting. Yeah, it is. And his link was to a Beyond Valor game box sold for five dollars on eBay. Oh, how about that? I can't re- even remember now which ones. I guess I, I guess I got rid of Beyond Valor and um, Yanks. Was the only two. Those were the, the two boxes. Yeah, and and I think my starter kit boxes, but that those don't really yeah. matter. Those don't count. No, those don't have art on them. Yeah. Email now from Mac Morocco, one of our regular contributors. Hi guys, great show. Can't remember which show he's talking about, but great show. Oh, maybe just the show in general. Okay, we'll take that. <laughs> great show. Two. Oh, this must have been show eighty-five. Okay, I'm going to get through this letter. It's only two sentences. I should be able to get through it. Great show. <laughs> Two freaking box art reviews and the commentary. I broke my own rule Woo. and hit informative and funny and interesting. Woo! How about that? You go, Matt. Just a quick FYI, Russ Gifford posted a slew of new tutorials, and we have a link here for that. Grab that link. Yeah. All things that Dave knows cold after 8,422 games, oh. but the <laughs> but most helpful to the rest of us. Yeah, I don't know them cold, as we're discovering all the time. Keep up the dull work. Always like that. I think Matt's the one that hits the dull button 24 (laughs) times. That could be. 
He's been dropping us a lot of hints on that. Yeah. And I have one from Anonymous posted on episode 86. I would like to hear an interview with the most interesting ASL player in the world. He's so interesting, he deserves a chapter all about himself in the ASL rule book from Vlad. And that is reference to our comedy bits. Thank you, Jack Garitza, once again. I did send him a little ASL bling, Jeff, as a thank you from our gift stack that we often offer up. And we need a contest soon, by the way. Oh, we do. But Good thinking. um, Yes, glad to hear you're enjoying them. And Jack Garitza, thank you for all your hard work. And the guys who originally started that again came from the Texas group or someone had a link and I had named them all off That's right. several yes. times. So don't be mad at me for stealing your thunder. Yeah. I have permission. And we won't even call it stealing right. your thunder. No, because I actually thought of it before you guys started. We're doing passing it. along the thunder. <laughs> Go. And Richard Carter sent us a letter. Thanks for the review of some Red Barricades rules. I thought I heard you say that only one multi-man counter with a support weapon could occupy a cellar. I may have misheard. Uh, you did. It, more can occupy the cellar, but only one can fire out without the penalty of right half firepower because of the little cellar opening. So that's what you probably heard. Uh, so we're playing that, and you can have more more guys in there and more support weapons in there. But there's limitations on how they fire out at full yeah. firepower. One squad so, can fire out at full <clears throat> firepower. Everybody else half. If right, if you go beyond that yeah. uh, stacking limit. And he says, I may have played the falling in the cellar rule wrong, though. I think, wow, a four to six on the red die to fall in. Yeah, that's true. And he says, I guess that makes ramming a fortified building a lot more risky. This is, this is one of my strategies to breach a fortified building in red barricades and valor the guards. And that is true. But the only buildings with cellars in red barricades are the multi-hex buildings, not factories. It's not a whole lot of them. I think it's about a third or less of the buildings on the board. So you can keep ramming that tank into the fortified factory locations or single building locations. Rick. All right. And we want to be sure to thank Rick Carter for his very generous donation. Thank you. Really nice. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to name something after you. We will. Yep. And we got more letters. I mean, we're getting a lot of letters. We have a lot more letters. We fell behind that week we missed, Yeah, I think. And, and I we hope everybody still likes the letters section. You know, nobody ever really says, oh, comments. man, love the letters section. They love box art review. And or they, they hate box art review. Or they hate box art review. But, you know, if you don't love the letters section, or if you do, uh, let us know. Sure, we'll chime in. we'll either keep it up or, or not. It's your show, people. Absolutely. And we're getting a little dry here, so we're going to have... Well... Something. Jeff just opened a Guinness drought draft draft that was labeled <laughs> drought, yes. drought drought draft that was that was labeled now even better tasting which makes me think yeah, it used to that? not be good or yeah. something so it probably used to not be good I think I had the old one and I think I yeah I think I had said yeah I'm just gonna drink the regular Guinness rather than this bottled drought draft draft stuff. yeah. <laughs> Trump. No longer. Oh yeah, look at that. No longer tastes like poo. I like that. Boy, that's catchy. Well, here. And it smells good. It's a Guinness. It I opened like nice. A Guinness. I like a Guinness. As my English bus driver told yeah. me on my tour of Ireland when I was a wee lad, twenty-five years ago. What did he tell you? It's good for you. She. It's full of vitamins. Oh. 
and it's kind of like drinking mud. But it is fortified yeah. mud. Yes, and I like it. Yeah, I like it a lot. Mm. And I didn't get any this year. I really like it a lot. Um, For Patty's Day, Patty's Day kind of came and went. And I wasn't. I was actually playing squad leader that day. And you didn't do an Irish accent. I didn't on do the show yet. Well, I mean, <laughs> I might be holding that till a little bit later, Dave. Well, now that I've seen that you've you've cracked open a little bottle of something extra, it's getting me all excited That's inside. Tell him more do, Tell him more do. Where did you find such a fine, fine it's bottle of the local Dominics? Oh, the Dom- <laughs> I wouldn't have expected on it. On sale. Look at that. It's beautiful. Some Irish whiskey. Oh, listen whiskey. to it, too. Oh, yeah. We don't like to glorify drinking. No, we don't. And we don't glorify drinking. We don't even like drinking. We just no, we fact, do it for the show. What's it's in my, the show. my other cup, Jeff? Diet Coke. Diet Coke. Yeah. Or Diet is, Pepsi something. Diet. It's Diet Coke. Yeah. Never Diet Pepsi. And we suspect that it's hindering my memory. The Diet. Dave's got it in his the mind diet coke. that I'm the gonna, Diet Coke is affecting his memory. I'm going to... Well, I think I saw a scientific study on that. Then it must be true. Short-term memory. And I think... Well, well it could look, be. I just, it, it actually I just be. closed the Telemordu without giving you any, Jeffrey. <laughs> what a I'm mistake. I'm going to be oh. you over the head with Michelle Ailey if <laughs> you don't hand that over right now. Well, didn't mean it. <laughs> You're kind of causing a bit of trouble for yourself. <laughs> Bringing it over and not oh. sharing. Sharing, it's not... Can't be... Oh. Kind thing to be doing to a man. <laughs> yeah, I've never had this. I've had many Irish whiskeys, uh, but never this one. And it's, I worry when I buy something like it's this. It's a nice looking goes, bottle. Michael Jeff's a real connoisseur. He's going to Oh my gosh! Choice. No, oh, Dave. <laughs> I think it's lovely uh, that you bought it, and it's very good looking. It looks like Listerine. It's. <laughs> oh. It's very and, light. and it no, actually no, has it's the same light. effect on killing germs yeah, that cause bad probably, breath. Probably. It's got a very light color. Here, let me smell it now. Hmm. Smells, smells like, like whiskey. whiskey. Yes, it does. I think we we agree. Tastes like whiskey. Hey, yeah. you know, it's it, actually quite... I'm becoming a whiskey connoisseur. It's a lot different than the last one I had. had yeah. Which was what did that you have? Farrock, that really peaty. Oh yeah, <clears throat> Lafroig one. Lafroig. Yeah. Lafroig. <laughs> well, it's been a long time since you had it. It's a weird name. But yeah, that's a very heavy peaty scotch, and this is very light. This and is nice. light. Yeah, mm-hmm. light it is. and nice. I it, can. It harms. It harms no one. You can take it to your local <laughs> well. church and drink it, and nobody would care. <laughs> but don't use it as holy water. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but see, I'm waiting for the listeners to write in and say, "Dave, hate to tell you, it's not the diet coke that's affecting <laughs> your memory loss. It's it's the Tullamore Dew. <laughs> Nobody drinks Tullamore Dew. It's the Guinness. Yeah. No, I really no, do. I thought I read that it affected short-term memory and a little bit neuro, and could have a higher incidence of stroke. Ooh, I'm serious. Well, you look it up. You're gonna find I'm that I'm hoping article. that you'll uh, quit. Yeah. Go back to tea. Yeah, good. Like I was doing. That'd be good. We want you here for a long time. And well, thank you, Jeff. We like not, you. Not everyone feels that way. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> All right. So what? Are, what? What's I don't next? Know. Then? What do you want? Why don't we? Um, you know, we got a book review. You, you read a book. book I read a book. So let's do that.
maestro. Knock it off. This is a library. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know. <laughs> Playing an orchestra. They, they thought it was bringing your orchestra with yeah, you to the library. Kind of crazy, I guess. <laughs> I guess they're having a hard time finding a place to practice. So we both read books like grown-up men, didn't we? Yes. And why don't you go first? Was it? A, is yours a picture book? No. No, mine isn't either. So I'm pretty proud of myself. Well, um, I've had it in my head for a while that I should be reading more uh, books about World War II. Not just the the nonfiction stuff, but some of the fiction stuff, both to just acquaint myself with the literature, and uh, but also to um, just kind of get in the feel of World War II. So I went into the vault, and I found some old books. And I did the same. Did you? Because a listener made fun of me for reading Clan of the Cave Bear. Cave Bear. Oh, did they really? Oh. So I thought I had to read some manly World War II stuff. Yeah. Well, I picked something just sort of at random. I found a copy of a book by Mr. Leon Uris, who is a very well-known author, uh, wrote Exodus and uh, many other fine bestsellers. This particular one, hmm, we'll see, it's called The Angry Hills. He wrote this book in 1955. Leon Uris was, uh, was alive during World War II. He did his writing after World War II. He was a, a journalist who then okay. started writing novels. And he wrote this one. This is one of his first books. So this novel, The Angry Hills, is about an American named Mike Morrison, who is an author and a recent widower. And he goes to Greece very early on in World War II to try to get some uh, inheritance that was due his wife, quite a bit of money. So he goes to Greece, flies into Athens, and seeks out a Greek lawyer who is taking care of the business for him. And it turns out that this Greek lawyer is involved with the underground movement and is supporting the British troops who are there waiting waiting for the Nazis to arrive. Okay. And he has this important letter and gives it to this American and entrusts it to him to take it to London. Well, this author does not want to do it. Mike Morrison doesn't want to do that. That's not what he's there for. He just wants his money and he wants to get out. But he gets ensnarled in a lot of, of the intrigue. Suddenly the Nazis find out that he's there and they're, they're moving down in through the north and uh, defeating the British as they go. And it's up to Mike Morrison to somehow get this letter out of Greece. And so the whole novel is involved with him going from village to village trying to evade the, this evil Nazi guy who is, who is after him. It's a very lightweight book. You could probably read it in about, well, lightweight in more ways than one. You could probably read it in about four hours. Uh, but it's kind of got a nice feel to it for the time. It feels a little dated. It feels a little um, dime, like a dime novel, to be honest with you. Is that fiction? It's fiction. Okay. Yeah. It's a novel. Mm-hmm. It's fiction. It does give you some of the some of the sense of the time. Uh, there are a couple of little exciting parts here and there. There isn't a lot of fighting. There isn't a lot of hardware or anything. So as a squad leader player, you may not get a, a lot out of this book. Okay. But it is fairly exciting. Uh, if you like the fact that the hero is constantly falling into bed with beautiful women no matter where he goes. He goes from village to village. He always manages to find the most beautiful woman in the village. She always manages to fall in love with him. They always manage to fall into bed together. And then he always manages to somehow cause her death, capture, or something horrible. And then he leaves and he's feeling really bad about it until he gets to the next village where he finds another beautiful woman to fall into bed with. 
All in the meanwhile, the crazy Nazis are like a Keystone cops along with um, along with a, a local Greek official who is trying to get on the good side of the Nazis and and sort of leading them around. And he gets chased around quite a bit. And you'll have to read the book to see how it ends, though actually the ending is pretty lame, in my opinion. But Boy, it sounds like some Mickey Spillane uh, yes, Cold War had, stuff. It, huh? it did kind of have a feel of Mickey Spillane, who was writing during that period as well. Her hips waved a happy hello. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but you do get a little bit of taste of what it was, what Greece was like at that time, early on in the war. This was also made into a movie. Oh, which I did not see, starring Robert Mitchum. You did you, what? I have not seen it. Oh, they said did not. No. Not see. Nazis. I did not see it. No. No, not Nazi. Nazi, Nazi. So I may watch that at some point. We'll see. Leon Uris has a bunch of other books, which I have several several of his other books. I'm going to read Battle Cry next, which is about the Pacific, and I'm reading that for a reason, the Pacific, which our li- listeners will find out in a couple of episodes. Okay. So if you want to join us in our reading effort, listeners, you could read Battle Cry. You can also read The Guns of Navarone, which I'll be reporting on next show. All right. The Angry Hills, Leon Uris, pick it up. Or and, not, it sounds or like. Or not, yeah. And what about you? Well, I chose the classic With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. And why? Because I think the listener that was making fun of me for reading Clan of the Cave Bear again that yeah. I had read in high school had mentioned it or or, some, or it was just the classic. No, I guess I grabbed it for five bucks somewhere and saw that, oh, this you always hear about this one, right? Yes, I have heard of that one. With the old breed. Yeah. You, you always hear about this. And it has the picture, well, I won't get into that. Um, parts of this story was made into the HBO miniseries The Pacific. You and I started ah, that, yes. reviewed the first episode or two, and then we stopped watching them all. I have recently bought it because it was like down to 20 bucks at like, Oh yeah, that's a good price, you know, at the store now. Yeah. So I grabbed the series thinking maybe Adam and I will. I remember it was going to be pretty graphic. Um, but if not I'll watch it on my own. And as I mentioned a scene from this book at work, a young teacher there had said that he had watched the Pacific and described the scene I was describing back to me and told me how it was slightly different in the TV series. Ah. And so it's a pretty graphic book. And at first it struck me as different because I had read so many nonfiction. Well, this is nonfiction, right? But it's his, yeah. his account of what he went through. Right. It's not quite, a, it's not an, it's not an autobiography. It's not a biography, right? Right. You know what I mean? He, he's telling about what he went through. And so the other books were all written by historians. Right? Yes. Third, I don't even know my person's yeah. anymore. No, no, I know, know what you mean. Right. Yeah. Historians after the fact, uh, collecting information from various people. And this guy's and this writing is just his, his account. His own account. Right. Which is, wow. And, um, and so in the preface, which was written by, I like to read portions from from these to our listeners. My Pacific, uh, the the preface is by, um, yeah, EBS, which would be EB Sledge. My Pacific War experiences have haunted me, and it's been a burden to retain this story. And but time heals, and the nightmares no longer wake me in a cold sweat. And now I can write this story, painful though it is to do. 
In writing it, I am fulfilling an obligation I have long felt to my comrades in the 1st Marine Division, all of whom suffered so much for our country. None came out unscathed. Many gave their lives, many their health, and some their sanity. All who survived will long remember the horror they could would rather forget. But they suffered, and they did their duty to a sheltered homeland, so a sheltered homeland can enjoy the peace that, has, that was purchased at such a high cost. We owe the Marines a profound debt of gratitude. And so with Very that nice. opening, I think yeah. you, you realize what you're in for here. Right? Nice introduction, talking about the Marine actions there. And so then I got to this page, part one, Peleliu. A neglected battle. And after reading these introductions and prefaces and acknowledgments, I got this feeling like I was almost watching a movie and was in for something or in for something. Like this page scared me when I looked at it. Yeah. Part one, Peleliu. You know, I, I mean, that's just how it was affecting me at the time. And so I highly recommend this book. Absolutely nothing to say bad about it. It has some little maps, which don't really matter much at all. It may have at the time that it was written. A few photographs of the people in the company that he's referring to. Right? And so these are his um, experiences as he moves through the Pacific. Doing two battles and and more. A little bit about boot camp, which I I think I Uh. couldn't care much about. Um, Peleliu was really fascinating. And then um, Okinawa. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Those were the, the two. The two big ones. And so, mm-hmm. again, a few pictures, but it's stuff you can find elsewhere. And this part I thought I would share today. What's that? I asked George anxiously. Sounds like a guy's having a nightmare, he replied nervously. Well, they sure as hell better shut him up before every nip in this damned swamp knows our position. We heard someone moving and thrashing around in the CP. Knock it off, several men whispered near us. Quiet the man down, Hillbilly ordered in a stern, low voice. Help, oh God, help me, shouted the wild voice. The poor Marine had cracked up completely. The stress of combat finally shattered his mind. They were trying to calm him down, but he kept thrashing around. In a firm voice filled with compassion, Hillbilly was trying to reassert the man that he was going, reassert, reassure the man that he was going to be all right. The effort failed. Our comrade's tragically tortured mind had slipped over the brink. He screamed more loudly. Someone pinned his arms, and he screamed to the Doberman pitcher, Help me, dog. The Japs have got me. The Japs have got me, and they're going to throw me in the ocean. I heard a sickening crunch of a fist against a jaw as someone tried to knock the man unconscious. Mm. It didn't phase him. He fought like a wild cat, yelling and screaming. Our corpsman gave him an injection of morphine. It had no effect. More morphine. It had no effect. Hit him with the flat of an entrenching shovel, a voice commanded. And you see where that's going. Yeah. I mean that's just Wow. Yeah, you don't you don't get that that kind of up close stuff here and and so his writing's just real matter of fact and uh, real plain, real honest I felt. He's a, a, a fairly sensitive guy obviously from the introduction. Hmm. You will meet occasional soldiers who say things like oh, it was all war's hell and you know, but um and so I have another example or two I'd like to share uh Uh, this one I thought really summarized the way three people dealt with a situation here. They were taking spoils of war here, and I saw in the mm-hmm. film The Thin Red Line, 
that they were taking gold teeth from the Japanese. It's the first time I ever saw that in no. any kind of account of the war films, you know. Yeah. And I teach my students. I, I've this year fallen into saying things this way. Yeah, the Americans put Japanese into camps, right? Yes. But were they concentration camps? No. Death Were they death camps? They were not death camps. Okay. So I say, see, the good bad guys, the good guys did some bad things, making them the good bad guys. Yes. But they're not as bad as the bad bad guys. Right. And I gesture to my walls with my flags of Axis and allies. And I know it's, you know what I'm just trying to say? It's, yeah, it's complicated. War it is very complicated. But there's a clear difference, and I want these students to really see. And, it, and you don't have to look far to see. It's very obvious. The bad, bad guys were really bad. Yeah. And again, that's a, not all Nazis were bad, and some actually saved Jews. And right. you know, I understand all that. And the good guys are not just the good guys. Right. right. There's plenty of bad in the good guys as well. <clears throat> yeah. And so then they're taking these um, treasures, and there was a man, who, a Japanese guy who had been wounded in the back and couldn't move his arms. And he wasn't dead, okay? So mm-hmm. some kind of spinal injury. Oh. The Japanese mouth glowed with huge gold-crowned teeth, and his captor wanted them. He put the point of his K-bar, the knife, on the base of a tooth, like the bayonet, I think. It's the knife that goes in the bayonet, not sure. But he does explain all that in the book. And hit the handle with the palm of his hand because the Japanese was kicking his feet and thrashing. The knife point glanced off the tooth and sank deeply into the victim's mouth. The Marine cursed him and with a slash cut his cheeks open to each ear. He put his foot on the sufferer's lower jaw and tried again. Blood poured out of the soldier's mouth. He made a gurgling noise and thrashed wildly. I shouted, put the man out of his misery. And all I got for an answer was a cussing out. Another Marine ran up, put a bullet in the enemy soldier's brain and ended his agony. The scavenger grumbled and continued extracting his prizes undisturbed. And so we see how three different men handle a situation in war. Yeah. Sledge knows it's kind of wrong. Says, hey, you know, put him out of his misery. Yeah. What are you, what are you doing? You yeah. know, and the guy cusses him out. Ah, screw you, Sledge. What the, what the hell are you talking about? You know, and then someone else takes action. Yeah. Well, I'm going to solve this the way I think it should be solved. Right. And steps up. And there's mm. in the next scene, Sledge actually starting to take some teeth and things. And the doctor comes up and says, paraphrasing it, not reading it, um, what are you doing? I'm taking some souvenirs. Well, you don't want to do that, Sledge. And he said, oh, yeah, sure I do. And so then the doctor's thinking, and he says, oh, you don't want to do that. All them germs, you know, and you know all those guys in sickbay and... And so then Sledge grasps onto that as the reason he's not going to take teeth out of a dead person's mouth. And I think that in his subconscious, he knows he doesn't want to do that. Yes, and, and now he's found a reason that he, he can hang his hat on. Yeah, he's on. Makes, yeah, he's yeah. on a. Yeah, he's hanging between. Mm-hmm. Am I going over this edge? Yeah, or not? Yeah. And then, uh, lastly, descriptions I thought to share of these flies. Well, I'll just rather than read this section, they, you know, moving. Uh, okay, what he's done here is he's captured the the scent smells mm-hmm. of the island battles as well as the visuals mm-hmm. and the emotions. Yeah, and I think when you get into that, you know, a, a few authors can describe the smells and, and realize you need that full uh, sensory explanation 
to feel this battle and the excrement, mm-hmm. the corpses, yeah. the rotting jungle rot, all of this going at once. And in this scene, the, the flies that would just get on these islands. And one of them was, of course, rocky. They couldn't bury the dead. They couldn't dig latrines. And they would just move in mass clouds off the dead and excrement onto their food as soon as they would open it, you know. Yeah. And more and more and more. I mean, you know, but I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And found it to be such a honest explanation. I thought as far as changing this terrible topic, sorry, kids. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I got a little too dark with this maybe, Jeff, but maybe we could pre-warn our listeners to move the children away. But there was this Japanese counterattack, and this is a a note in the chapter. A Japanese counterattack on the 3rd to 4th of May was a major effort aimed at confusing the American battle plan by isolating and destroying the 1st Marine Division. The Japanese made a night amphibious landing of several hundred men on the east coast behind the 7th Infantry Division. And I was wondering if that was a scenario or if someone might make that into a scenario with the landings when the um, rising sun comes out. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so there's, as far as ASL goes, if you want to still play the game after this book, uh, tons and tons of battle descriptions. Crossing open ground under mortar fire, but they had to get across. Guys' heroic acts, you know, guys' cowardly acts. Um, Just everything. Good leadership, bad leadership. Uh, Absolutely fantastic book. What's the scale we're using here? Uh, One to two, five. Five stars. Five stars. And that's a five-star book. And that's why it is so famous. New York Times bestseller with the old breed. Wow. And when did that come out? Just curious. Just curious how long that's been out. Well. Uh, when that was. <clears throat> Where is that? In the front? Yeah. And while you're looking that up, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the book I read which I did a, a brief report on the Ghost Mountain Boys, which was about the uh, battle for New Guinea in the South Pacific. Oh. And um, that book was equally vivid in its drawing that picture of what it was like to live through that. Not only the battles, but the hellish conditions of the jungle, the disease, the rain, the cold. I do remember the, that. I just... Horrifying and engrossing. You can't put it down. And partially because, I mean, not because I'm a voyeur in that sense, but it's just remarkable to see what the human can endure under horrible, horrible conditions. And how can they get more horrible? And then they get more horrible. And people live through it. And I just can't even imagine. Yeah, I I never feel, it's not entertainment, of course, ever in that respect. Right. 1981. Okay. Copyright and then reissued, of course, 07, 2010. Well, I'd like to put that on my list of things to read. Well, I could probably leave it with you. I don't think I'll take it to school and read pieces. I've already paraphrased a few of them. Yeah. Uh, That's probably enough. To to push them toward that edge, you know, to say this. You read this in a textbook, you know, six million people died in World War II. Yes. (laughs) And they're sitting there, Jeff, so disconnected. Yeah. And it takes one. 
I, I heard this somewhere. It takes one human story to bring that alive for them. And so I do that with little stories. The films do it when they show. You know, the documentaries that I use interview people. Yes. In this episode, The Woman's Husband, The Century, was came out in the late 90s. Husband was a pilot. And then we're introduced to them with their new baby, and it's all cool. He's off to war, and it's the you know early part of the film. You know, yay, go America. And then in the mid-film, uh, his plane shot down. He has to wait to jump. He's the officer. Shoot doesn't open. He never returns. Mm. And, boy, I had kids commenting, especially girls, you know. Oh, Mr. Kleinschmidt, that was so sad. And, you know, he died. And I said, okay, now try and magnify that by $60 million. And even then they can't quite make that jump. Yeah. But they understand my point. See, this was an emotional experience for these people. This is not just boring history we're, we're reading here. And then today I got to the end of that segment of the, of the film, and um, I had forgotten they show her again. Everyone's celebrating the end of the war. Paul Fussel, Fussel is an author. Some listeners will know him. We'll probably encounter his books sometime. He gives his account of weeping, knowing he won't go into Japan after the bomb is dropped. And... Then she reappears and says, you know, yeah, I didn't go out and celebrate with everyone at all. I mean, after all, right, my my war already had ended when her husband went down. Yeah. You know, and then it's touching these kids again, especially some of these girls that were – so, yeah. And that's how, you know, you experience it. it got to be personal stories. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's it's really not meaningful. Yeah. That's the problem with – I don't want to get too far off topic. But, no, you history know, or, or – or, Well, watching the news. Uh-huh. Oh, such and such is going on, you Over know, bombs there. blowing up and people dying, and we don't get the connection. Yeah. You know, we don't have a connection to what is actually no. happening or what those people are going through or what it's, how meaningful it is in these people's lives. And we don't get that. Yeah, does that make, does that, so it's more objective that the newscaster can't focus in on the no. crime person too no, much? No, of or? course not. It's what the American public wants because... That's what sells news is what the American public wants. So that's what's on the news. And that's more toward the spectacle side kind of. Yes. Oh, look at that explosion. Oh, look at that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And it happens over, over there. there. It's like watching a movie. Except Sandy Creek, they'll stop and they'll start to examine a little more of yes. individual lives. Yeah, right. But no one else gets that respect. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that kind of, in that same vein, leads me into a movie that I watched recently. And uh, this was a movie, the movie is called Attack. Sometimes it's just Attack and sometimes it's Attack with an exclamation point. This is a 1956 American war film directed by Robert Aldrich. Sounds familiar. did a lot of movies after that, including The Angry Hills, the book that I just oh, did the book yes, report on. Right. I did that movie. Um, he also did The Dirty Dozen and lots of other movies. What's interesting about this movie for a 1956 movie, it, it's, it's the war had been over long enough, and it wasn't during the war, of course. The war was over, and the war had been over long enough when it was okay, starting to be okay, for directors and for Hollywood to come out with movies that weren't so all pro, all pro-American, uh-huh. isn't war okay, you know, they're not trying to sell war bonds anymore, and they're starting to show the, the uglier side of war, including, in, in the case of this particular film, the fact that the Americans were not all heroes, were not all 
Not uh-huh. everything they did worked out great. And this particular film uh, takes place right around the Battle of the Bulge and is about a particular company of men who are led by a coward, a man, a captain, played by Eddie Albert, who is a coward and who is afraid to go to, afraid to be in war. He's been promoted way beyond his means, his abilities. He's afraid to go to war. He's he's a coward and he sends men to their death without having the courage to then follow up with reinforcements and do the things that need to be done to support his troops. And it doesn't depict everybody beautifully. And as a result of this rather new way of depicting World War II, Robert Aldrich did, had a very hard time getting funding for the film. So it was very ma- uh-huh. it was made on a very low budget, but it's an all-star cast. Um, Jack Palance plays the, the good lieutenant, the brave lieutenant who's out to... to bring this captain down, this cowardly captain down. He sees that he's leading his men into these horrible situations where they're getting killed and they're outnumbered and just poorly managed. Lee Marvin is also in it. He plays a colonel, very much similar to the to the part he played in The Dirty Dozen. Dozen, yeah. yeah. Uh, Will, Will Smithers, uh, some of these names are, are names that I don't really recognize the names, but you'll mm-hmm. recognize the actors. Robert All Strauss. Richard Jekyll, who was also in The Dirty Dozen, played Lee Marvin's lieutenant in that. And Buddy Epson. Oh, the Scarecrow. Play, plays a part. He was not the Scarecrow, but he... Oh, he was going to be he the was Scarecrow, going to right? be Ray the Scarecrow. Bolger was the yeah. Scarecrow, of course. <laughs> That's right. So the movie, you know, it's very good, black and white. It's kind of made, made during the 50s, so it's kind of made during the beatnik era, and you get a feeling of that through the movie with the way the music goes. They're playing goes. bongos? They are. There's bongos. No, and, really? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of that avant-garde <laughs> yeah. sort of beat generation yeah. look to it. But still, it's a very engrossing movie. It opens up beautifully. The lights come up. The camera goes on. There's an explosion suddenly. You see a field, there's a huge hole in the ground and smoke, and these men come running up and they jump in the hole for cover. They're attacking a German position. So it's got a great beginning on it, which yeah. which I love, because you don't see that very often, Open with some think, action stuff in going. old movies. It's very popular now in new movies, even they'll open with a lot of action and then they'll they'll have a like a five-minute big action scene and then they'll say two years earlier, and then you get the lead up. Uh, but this movie opens up with that big boom. Yeah, or, men, or like I think I remember Spielberg opened one of the Indiana Jones films with yes. the end of a film with the uh, Asian guys in the poison capsule and it's getting kicked around. Yes, and the sequin dress dance. Right, it was really the end of a whole film we never ever saw. Right, and, and then picks up with the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I love that. Um, and then it goes on to to uh, follow the exploits of this cowardly captain and how he mismanages his men and how the men are turning on him or hating him. Nevertheless, he's still getting pushed forward. He needs to take this town where the, that the Germans are in, they think. And so he very cowardly assigns Jack Palance and his squads, his platoon, to go in and take this town. And Jack Palance was like, well, we don't know if there are there Germans in there. Can't we have some support first? And and uh, Eddie Albert is just, well, I've got these orders, and you've got to go. And and uh, Jack Palance says, well, if I'm going to go, 
If I call for help, you got to come in and get me. And Eddie Albert says, yes, we'll come and get you. So they send off, they get wiped out, except for a few men hide out in a farmhouse. They're calling for help. Help us. You got to help us. You got to get up here. Eddie Albert won't, won't react. He doesn't want to hear about it. He just wants to have more of his brandy. Uh, and yeah. it's horrible. Yeah. Jack Palance gets wounded and doesn't return until the very last scene of the movie. This is a, then there's a great scene where he finally stumbles in and he's praying to God that he just has enough strength to come up and sh- and kill his captain. Oh. But he falls. It's a great dying scene. Oh. If you've ever done dying scenes, you're an actor. I, Aren't dying scenes the most fun? I Especially when I did The Dentist in um, Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. I've never seen that. But is there a good dying scene in there? Yeah, I die in my gas mask. Oh, good. <laughs> so he he goes in. He dies before he can kill Eddie Albert, but the other men kill him. In fact, one man, his, like his right man, right-hand man, kills him, shoots him in cold blood. And after he's down there, he says, I'm going to have to turn myself in. And the other men come around, and they all shoot uh, the dead body of Eddie oh. Albert. We shot him, too. You're, oh. not the, you're not the guy that killed oh, him. I thought they were just angry. Which is kind of a weird okay. scene, well, because they're, they're coming, shooting this dead body. Yeah, but, they're, but their attention is protective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then uh, Lee Marvin comes in and says, well, what went on here? Oh, well, the Germans got him. And that's kind of the end of the film. Yeah. Good film. I'd recommend this highly. Yeah. Yeah. Well well done. Very good uh, editing, good music. Attack. Good acting. Overacting, we would say, probably, probably by today's by today, standards. But... but but well done and worth it. it. You can find it on Netflix. Oh, okay. Because that's what maybe Adam and I will watch it too, you know. I like to get him to do my movie reviews yeah. with me too. Try it out. Next week, uh, our next show, we're going to do uh, The Guns of Navarone, both the book and the movie. All right. I yeah. will try and watch it before then, but if I don't, I trust your opinion, Jeffrey. I trust your opinion, Jeffrey, except on the longest day. That's fine. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. Well, it's amazing, but I think we're just about out of time. We got an hour yeah, and 15 minutes into this. Call that a show, I, I guess. Mean, I, did we talk about Squad Leader? No. <laughs> did we? The okay. letters. This will be letters. The, okay. This will be the show where we don't talk about all that much Squad Leader, I guess. Uh, we talked about other stuff. 20% dedicated yeah. to the greatest <laughs> game in the world. And yeah. we didn't use that as our intro anymore, so. No, we didn't today. All right. Yeah, no wonder I'm feeling a little off. Yeah. Well, I'm glad... Uh, that we did that, I'm you know I'm also kind of glad we're done with red barricades. That was really I, I that was interesting, but I'd had enough of red barricades. I think if I had oh, to do well, any well, more red barricades, that would be like oh, nobody well, you know people would stop well, listening anyway. Are you sure? So I'm glad we're yeah? done. Oh yeah, okay. I'm glad we're done. Yeah, 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 we're done. Done red barricades. Yeah. But I'm not. We're, I'm not finished. Close the book. Could, we're nailing that we're coffin we're, closed. We're only on turn. That's the end of that one. Turn thirteen. Open up the we, ending credits. Red barricades have, done. Gone, complete, finito. We, well, we, we didn't finish Vini, the game. Vini, Red Barricade yeah. Exit. The rest of the game will probably play out just like the first part of the game probably. anyway. So covered the rules the and all that. Some things, yeah. It's all the same stuff over and over again. All right. Hey, everybody. It's Dave here. I just thought I'd take an opportunity to sneak in some recording by myself. I know I've kind of been banned from doing my own recordings without anyone else as a co-host. Because people say they're boring, but what do people know anyway? 
but I uh, thought I'd just keep doing these little little uh, tutorials on my own, or uh, they're not really tutorials, just little snippets of show for you. And tonight I thought I would record a reading, reading of the footnotes for the Red Barricades game. Now these are just the footnotes that go with the terrain descriptions that we used for the last bid. I won't do the ones that go with the campaign game rules, because we're not really doing campaign games with uh, this little discussion we've been having about our Red Barricades game. So, starting with rule 0.4b, uh, factory rooftop access points. It states, placing factory stairwells and hexes containing a road hexide is done only as a convenience. Such hexes are simply easier for a player to spot. The road itself does not magically allow a unit to climb to the factory roof. A stairwell is assumed to exist inherently in the interior of that factory location. Well, gosh begolly, I kind of thought this, the, the um, ladder ran on the outside of the building uh, to the roof alongside the big door, aluminum door you'd roll up and down, but don't know where I got that idea. Probably from some local warehouses that are around my neighborhood here. So apparently these are on the interior of the factory and it's just kind of randomly done there to be easy to spot by the road. The second footnote is 0.4b also. Factory rooftop access points. Hey, same title as the previous footnote. The extensive use of rooftops in the Red Barricades playtest highlighted the fact that an inherent stairwell in every hex of a one and a half level factory is simply unrealistic. Hence, it was decided to refine things a bit by stating that all such factories must have a special scenario rule designated rooftop access point when the use of rooftops is allowed. Since all Red Barricades factories have at least one printed rooftop access point, this sentence really applies only to future do-your-own scenarios, having rooftop factory rooftops in effect. Okay, and that makes sense. You wouldn't have a stairwell up to the roof on every single hex, I suppose. Now, debris, footnote 3, one, uh, rule 1.1. Debris represents scattered cannon barrels, piped steel girders, and wrecked machinery, as well as other light rubble from shelling and bombing which littered the Red Barricade's Ordnance Factory and the surrounding area. So it really says nothing about mice or, you know, bodies of dead mice or cookies. Guys didn't finish with their lunch in there at all, as Jeff and I were discussing on a previous show. Footnote 4, Rule 2.1, Railway Embankment. Historically, the Germans advanced south towards the barricade along the railway embankments, which were among the few features in the area affording cover against withering Soviet fire from the factories. Yeah, that part of the map's pretty open, except for those railway embankments. So I'm sure they took cover there. A nice little footnote for Rule 5.43, Rooftop Line of Sight. A rooftop unit wishing to see a lower elevation is assumed to crawl to the edge of the rooftop. The rooftop artwork overlapping onto a roofless factory hex therefore never blocks line of sight, similar to the jagged edge of a cliff hex side. And that makes sense to me. They have these little jagged edges holding over, sticking over the next hex, and that doesn't really count for anything. It's just a nice little visual 
to show the broken up part of the roof. Footnote 6, Rule 6.1, Red Barricade Cellars. Many accounts of the desperate fighting in Stalingrad talk of the extensive use of cellars for last-ditch defensive efforts, hence the decision to include this special dimension in the Red Barricades module. The Red Barricades cellar locations are always considered fortified due to the fact that there is more limited access to the location since most of it is underground hence the higher TEM as well. Further, well, I think the higher TEM comes from the fortification. But anyway, further, since most of the location is below ground level, but limited to firing ports exist, it is assumed, a squad firing its inherent firepower from such a location into a non-adjacent location is halved due to the smaller and less numerous apertures. And again, I think Jeff and I referred to the ANTM cellar doors. You'd have this well-protected one little door. And a support weapon firing thusly is not halved. Just stick the barrel of the machine gun right out that little door. If agreeable, oh, however, as it would usually be given the prime firing position. Oh, okay, well, yeah. If agreeable to both players, they could use this as an optional rule in some do-your-own games. Sure. Footnote 7. 6.7, encirclement. Infantry in a Red Barricade's cellar location are immune to the effects of encirclement. Due to the fortress-like nature of the cellar, when surrounded in such a position, a side neither asked for nor was given any quarter. It was invariably a battle to the last man. Okay, I was kind of thinking encirclement didn't count because there were less windows to see in and to shoot in, but I guess you could still be surrounded if guys came through a connecting trench into the cellar location from behind you and you had guys in the front coming at you from like the side of the building. Um, but apparently it's the last-ditch stand kind of a, an idea. It could have made it fanatic, I guess, too, but... Why not the encirclement rule? Footnote 8. Seven, rule 7.1. The culvert. The culvert represents an underground gully formed by a 4 to 5 foot wide concrete drainage system passing beneath street level to connect it to the normal gully. Now since the culverts assumed to have a concrete floor as well, mines may not be set up hidden in the culvert. Makes sense. Footnote 9. Rule 9.1, storage tanks. These represent large man-made structures for storing various industrial liquids and chemicals, such as petroleum and solvents. Evidence suggests that those featured on the RB map were drained, empty at the time of the battle. Oh, I think that answers a question Jeff and I had in a previous episode about why they don't blow up good. Because if they had petroleum and solvents, they would blow up good. But they're saying that it seems they were drained empty. Footnote 10, Rule 10.1, the Molotov Projector. Now this little-known Soviet weapon, for which no official designation has come to light, was used in 1942-43 and then discarded. It looked somewhat like a Panzerschreck, but unlike the latter, it did not fire a rocket. 
Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why it was discarded. Well, in our game, it hasn't worked out very effectively. I missed Timidin's tank when I was telling you I would get it from two directions with two different Molotovs. And uh, Tom's had a heck of a time just igniting one building on fire with the thing. But anyway, moreover, not being recoilless, it was probably incapable of being sh shoulder-fired. The U.S. Army referred to it as a low-trajectory mortar for firing incendiary ampules at AFV, thus implying that it was a smooth-bore muzzle loader with a glass Molotov-like projectile. And I believe that an ampule, yeah, it's like a sealed glass capsule containing a liquid. Uh, and this could be a measured quantity ready for injecting, but in this case it would mean that. Uh, I think the word ampule is French uh, in origin, from the Latin ampulla. But I digress. In, uh, in the issue uh, was apparently not widespread of the Molotov projector, but in 1942-43 to 43, at least some rifle battalions contained one Molotov projector, platoon, probably two to four weapons. Photographic evidence indicates that it was used in Stalingrad. Now that's the last of the terrain rule footnotes, but I thought I would read a little more here. Uh, the campaign game footnotes introduction states, Each campaign game scenario is intended to simulate the most crucial actions taking place on the barricade on that day of the campaign, perhaps picking up at the point with the most potential for a breakthrough. Players should realize the events occurring on the map within the span of about 10 to 15 game time minutes, with two minutes being a complete game turn, in real life might have taken considerably longer, given the cautious close-quarter nature of the Stalingrad fighting. You know, and that makes me think about the whole thing of time. Seriously, each game turn is two minutes, one minute per side. It just when you watch, I don't know, the battle, even the battle footage, you know, guys are hunkered down a lot, waiting to make the right move, and just firing across at each other. I could see that as being a short amount of time for an ASL game turn. But I have no problem believing that the events happening in a, in a Red Barricades game turn are going to take much longer. And I like footnote 15. Uh, campaign game, Special Rule 9, Russian Infantry RG, is that reinforcement groups? Most Russian infantry reinforcements were ferried across to the west bank of the Volga at night. And you guys have seen this in the movie, the oh, sniper movie, Enemy at the Gates. And even then, suffered considerable casualties due to the German interdiction. The ferry landing in the Barricade factory district was roughly divided midway between the Red Barricades and the Red October factories, about where Hex's LL-41 and LL-47 would be, were the map to include such. Now, reinforcements entering play along the east edge represent released divisional or regimental reserves. So I guess those are what I'm getting as a Russian here. Tom and I are getting these east edge reinforcements. And I assume they were coming off the boats and moving along the off-board edge and then coming up from from there. But I guess they're not uh, units from the boats. That would probably be the Valor of the Guards. And I haven't, again, delved into that to play yet. But it does have the docks on it and all that. And there's a uh, rule 
footnote for 17 for Rule 11.4, the campaign game Rule 11. The Red Barricades Ordnance Factory provided the Soviets with an important strategic anchor for the defense of the city. The thick-walled concrete block construction of the massive work halls provided numerous easily fortified locations from which to carry on the struggle. Russian infantry fought with well-documented grim fanaticism for virtually every square meter of the devastated factories. I think campaign game rule 11 is the fact that the Russians are fanatic in the factories. Campaign game 12, all commissars were recalled, rule 12, were recalled from frontline duty by an order from Stalin himself, effective November 1942. So the Leader substituted for such was a removed commissar, represents a fresh Soviet leader, newly risen to fill the gap created by the recalling of the commissars. Yeah, I remember reading about that. He found the commissars were not effective. Why was that again? It wasn't just that they were shooting everybody, right? Was it that they, oh, that the troops really liked having the order of general lieutenant, you know, people being ranked higher than each other. And I think the concept of communism was to get rid of all those rankings in the military, and Stalin figured out that that wasn't working so well, if I remember correctly. And that rule pretty much finishes up the footnotes we're going to read. A lot of the others are about, like, how to determine a pocket, what a perimeter, why a perimeter is a perimeter, and flames spreading it overnight, and so on. So anyway, hope you enjoyed this little reading of the footnotes to Red Barricades. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Yes, thanks for joining us, everyone. We, we hope you're still here, and we hope you'll join us again next time for another exciting episode of the Two Half Squads. And until then... Remember to roll low. And rally well. But, but not, not when, when you're, you're playing, playing us, us. <laughs> I laddie. Lassies don't play ASL. I don't know if they do it or not. Only the laddies. Bye, everybody. You know what I've never understood is the Irish. A lot of things, Jeff. Well, yes, quite a bit. The Irish and the Scotch. They both wear kilts. It's connected to England. And they don't wear the Scotland kilts. is connected to England. They don't wear the kilts. Okay. And the Irish, they say lads and lassies, and so do the Scots. Yeah. This and is a Celtic thing, isn't it? Do the Irish play bagpipes? Celtic. The bagpipe came from Scotland, Ireland. Is oh, it did? I'm off the cuff. I'm going to say that. I need to learn more. I think there were the ancient Celts, so I like to call them Celts. And I call them Celts, and too. And they the, were the Britons. Yeah, the Britons. King of the Britons. different race than the Celts. Than the Celts, the Britain, right. Or were the Britons Celts, too? No, the, the Britons were were from Northern Europe, I think. Right. Yeah, Weren't they? Well, the I don't know, because then the you Angles know, and the, the Britons, Britons or the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes fought the, the Britons. Oh, they came later. Yeah. And that's the whole Arthurian legend. Yes. Yeah. I have played... Ancient war games, 15 millimeter miniatures, so I painted up those armies. <laughs> that, that I did research some of those armies, though.